In Isaiah chapter 19, the prophet writes, The burden against Egypt, behold, the Lord rides on a swift cloud and will come into Egypt. The idols of Egypt will totter at his presence, and the heart of Egypt will melt in its midst. I will set Egyptians against Egyptians. Everyone will fight against his brother, and everyone against his neighbor, city against city, kingdom against kingdom. The spirit of Egypt will fail in its midst. I will destroy their council, and they will consult the idols and the charmers, the mediums and the sorcerers. And the Egyptians I will give into the hand of a cruel master and a fierce king will rule over them, says the Lord, the Lord of hosts. The waters will fail from the sea and the river will be wasted and dried up. The rivers will turn foul. The brooks of defense will be emptied and dried up. The reeds and rushes will wither the papyri reeds by the river, by the mouth of the river. And everything sown by the river will wither be driven away and be no more. The fishermen will also mourn and those will lament who cast hooks into the river and they will languish who spread nets on the waters. Moreover, those who work in fine flax and those who weave fine fabric will be ashamed and its foundations will be broken. All who make wages will be troubled of soul. Surely the princes of Zoan are fools Pharaoh's wise counselors give foolish advice or counsel. How do you say to Pharaoh, I am the son of the wise, the son of ancient kings. Where are they? Where are your wise men? Let them tell you now and let them know what the Lord of hosts has purposed against Egypt. The princes of Zoan have become fools. The princes of Noth are deceived. They have also deluded Egypt. Those who are the mainstay of its tribes the Lord has mingled a perverse spirit in her midst, and they have caused Egypt to err in her work. As a drunken man staggers in his vomit, neither will there be any work for Egypt, which the head or tail, palm branch or bulrush may do. One of the most quoted Old Testament books in the New Testament is the book of Psalms. The second most quoted book in the New Testament is the book of Isaiah. Many of you are going to be familiar when Jesus began his earthly ministry. He opens to the book of Isaiah and says that the spirit of the Lord is upon me. The book of Isaiah was written in part to condemn and to console. And when Isaiah wrote this book, the nation of Judah faced Threats from the Assyrians to the north, the Babylonians to the east, the Egyptians to the south. Like I said, I was scheduled to go to Egypt tomorrow and I was reading a note from Dr. Ken Boa. Some of you are going to be familiar with him. He was he's the president of Reflections Ministries in Atlanta and the author of several books. And he was asked, I understood you were in Egypt recently during the uprising. And he says, my wife and I were on the Nile River cruise and were flown back to Cairo the night of 
Monday, January 31st, the uprising began January 25th, so it was a bit dicey. He says, we arrived at the curfew and our bus had to go through several checkpoints with armed guards. There were vigilante groups. We managed to get to our hotel that night. We were able to fly out the next day because Viking River Cruises chartered a plane for its guests. We knew that many people were praying for us and supernaturally, neither my wife or I had any sense of anxiety. And he says, what are your thoughts on Egypt as it relates to biblical prophecy. And he writes, I want, or he said, I want to be careful not to engage in newspaper exegesis. You know, this is what the newspaper says, and here's what the Bible says. But there are some surprises. But having said that, I believe Egypt is important in the purposes and the plans of God. I'm struck with Egypt's connection with Israel. When Abram, who was then Abram, went to Egypt in Genesis 12, he more than likely saw the pyramids on the plateau of Giza that you and I can see today. The great pyramid of Cheops with its 2.3 million blocks of stone, each weighing up to 2.5 tons, had already been there for 500 years. An incredible achievement. Joseph would go to Egypt, as you know. And would find favor with the Pharaoh. Then the oppression that took place 400 years until Moses was raised up. Under Moses, Egypt was used by God as a mother who gave birth to a nation. It was in the womb in which 70 children of Israel went in. Then after 400 years of gestation, some 2.5 million departed. And they were birthed through the water and the blood. That is the Exodus and the Passover. Very interesting imagery, he writes. And I concur. As you can imagine, this tiny state during the time of Isaiah was at great risk. The tiny state of Israel by right now is currently surrounded by 300 million plus neighbors. And many of those neighbors have expressed the desire to see the nation exterminated. As a matter of fact, in, Isaiah, in Psalm chapter 83... I'm going to read the first four verses. It says, do not keep silent, O God. Do not hold your peace. Do not be still, O God. For behold, your enemies make a tumult. And those who hate you have lifted up their head. They have taken crafty counsel against your people and consulted together against your sheltered ones. They have said, come and let us cut them off from being a nation. That the name of Israel will be remembered no more. It was not the current president of Iran who first came up with the idea to exterminate Israel or to wipe it off the face of the map. In the last several months, we have seen the governments of Tunisia, of Lebanon, of Libya, of Egypt produce riots. Also in the United Arab Emirates. The government of Jordan averted a disaster by its king making guarantees of peaceful transition. That's not even to mention the, the continued riots in Iran. All the world wonders what kind of government will emerge from the smoke and the ashes. The Muslim Brotherhood is a group that was founded in the 1920s. And you may not know this, but their slogan is Islam is the solution, unquote. The Brotherhood's stated goal is to instill the Quran and the Sunnah as the, quote, sole reference point for ordering the life of the Muslim family, of individual and community and state, unquote. 
The Muslim Brotherhood at this very moment operates in Israel, in the Knesset. As a matter of fact, there's a northern branch which boycotts all Israeli elections, and there's a southern branch which participates in those elections. Currently, the Muslim Brotherhood is banned in Egypt. They hate Israel, and they have vowed to continue to support the overthrow of the modern state of Israel by continuing to support and fund terrorist groups like Hamas and Hezbollah. The Bible speaks of a plan that God has, a plan for judgment of the nations. Isaiah prophesied God's plan to set his people free from the threat of Assyria. God's plan of finding refuge in the Lord from Philistia, which is modern Gaza. God's character of compassion as it relates to Moab and Jordan. And in this passage, God gives a burden, if you will, an oracle to Isaiah to describe God's plan for the for for the for Egypt. And in that plan, there's a revelation of some of the things that have taken place in the past and some of the things that are taking place in the present and some of the things that I believe are going to take place in the future. The passage is about God's just judgment and about his clear warning. But probably the very first question that you should ask is, why does God judge Egypt? And the answer, in part, is for the same reason that God will judge all the nations. You have to understand something. In part, God's judgment will prove that Egyptian gods are false and attempts to trust those gods are futile. That very notion is something that you should be aware of in your own life. God doesn't just judge idolatry in nations, but he Uh, judges it in people, in families. And you might be thinking, well, there are no idols in my life. I don't have statues of stone or gold or silver. But remember, idolatry isn't just simply something that you worship in the form of a statue. And if you're wondering if you have a problem with idolatry, let's take a little test. Because the truth is that the thing that you think about when you get up in the morning and the thing that you live for throughout the day and the thing that you go to bed at night thinking about is probably the thing that you love and that you care about. And even though you may not be willing to admit it, guess what? The thing that preoccupies your mind and your heart and your soul and your affection runs the risk of judgment. Because... God's plan and God's enduring mercy and God's warning is the reality that there's only one thing that can be trusted fully and finally, and that's the person of Christ. And so Isaiah describes a series of punishments and and judgments visited on the land of Egypt. And then he describes God's plan for salvation at the end of the chapter in an incredible act of mercy and kindness. And so in verse one, look what it says. The burden against Egypt. Behold, the Lord rides on a swift cloud and will come into Egypt and the idols of Egypt will totter at his presence. The heart of Egypt will melt in the midst. And again, the reason for the prophecy is Egypt must be judged. 
And the judgment includes the fact that false gods and goddesses trusting idols is foolish and futile. And the picture in Isaiah is the Lord riding on a swift cloud. And this is a picture of a judge who comes in unannounced. With all of the glory and honor and majesty. And the Lord is the judge of the earth. And the scriptures repeatedly affirm God's right to judge. Now the idea of God coming on a swift cloud means that he's above resistance and opposition. And you see, part of the challenge that we have as people who live in the here and now is to ask and answer the question. Human beings may question God's right to judge or resist God's right to judge. They might even physically try to resist that judgment, but, the, but it's futile. You see, right now you might be living in a world and under a circumstance where you have successfully ran away from God or that you've ignored God or pretended that he's not real or that he doesn't matter. But just like a future judgment is coming on the nations and specifically to Egypt, a future judgment is going to unfold for all people in every nation. And the Bible makes it abundantly clear that each person will have to give an account of their life to God. And so in Isaiah 19, it says the idols of Egypt will totter at his presence and the heart of Egypt will melt in the midst. And by the way, some of the stone monuments of Egypt are massive. Our own Washington Monument was was modeled after the huge monuments that are in Egypt. As a matter of fact, when I was a, a, a younger person, I, I climbed those pyramids, uh, me and a friend of mine. Now, these have survived war and weather and time. And there was a time when I actually climbed th those pyramids illegally, but I did it. It was wrong. I placed my hands on the worn and weathered Sphinx. These are the same monuments that were perhaps seen by Abraham and Jacob and, and Joseph. But when it says the idols of Egypt will totter at his presence, the reality being that even these stone fixtures will be shaken to the core. I want to draw your attention to the word idols. As a matter of fact, the Hebrew word translated idol is an interesting word in the English. Well, in the Hebrew language, it's Elil. It is a word that means in the Hebrew language. A nothing. Something that has no substance, empty, worthless, insufficient. And so when the ancient writers would use that word, they would use it in the sense of the nothings, if you will. People who love idols, who practice idolatry, they tend to think that their idols are somethings. And you see, this is the key concept. The repeated testimony of the scripture is the fact that they're worthless, that they're meaningless, that they're valueless, that they pollute the soul. They cause men and women to trust that which is not trustworthy. 
The Egyptians carved stone and formed gods and goddesses. And some of those have survived, obviously. But the ancient Egyptians rejected the knowledge of the true and the living God. They refused the worship of God. And once, once again, an hour is going to come. An hour of trial where they find their gods useless. Matthew Henry describes the hearts of the Egyptians melting like wax on the day of judgment. They shrink, showing no courage or resolve either to defend themselves or their own country. And by the way, Isaiah describes the collapse of a great culture and civilization. And what does that collapse look like? There's a civil war. There's civil disorder. There's rioting, there's social upheaval, brother is set against brother, neighbor against neighbor, affection and loyalty are thrown to the wind in the midst of the upheaval. There's a great sense of despair and hopelessness. There's a substantial lack of political leadership. There's a commitment to a religious worldview that in its core is useless mystical, a false kind of supernatural, riddled with occult themes and methodologies. That's part of the point. The citizens are enslaved and they're controlled by foreign powers and they're taken captive. They're controlled by an evil dictator. In verse 4, a fierce king. In the past, this may have been a reference to the king of Perhaps Ethiopia or even Assyria in the future, perhaps a glimpse at a future wicked ruler or the Antichrist catastrophic weather patterns that lead to drought, the drying of the Nile River, catastrophic water and food shortage, aqueducts and canals reek with a horrible stench, streams dry up. There is um, a collapse of not only the agricultural industry, but the fishing industry, the clothing and textile industry suffers collapse. The um, human resources across the country are thrown into hopelessness and despair. The people become sick at heart. Wicked counselors give bad advice. Foolish people make foolish decisions. The officials are at a loss to know how to solve their problems. The leadership of the country is completely oblivious to the plan of God and the character of God and the word of God. And they're described as being deceived. And the reason why this becomes, again, important to you is because when judgment takes place, the vast majority of people will remain oblivious to the plan of God, the character of God, and the word of God. False counselors give foolish advice, which leads the country further and further and further from the true and living God. The Lord allows the people to embrace foolish spirits, embrace their own warped, perverted, inadequate, foolish ideas. And then there's a complete collapse of internal leadership. Do you think this is unique to Egypt? Or does it become a type and a picture of what happens when a, when a nation forsakes the true and the living God? By the way, have these prophecies been fulfilled or partially fulfilled? Or do some of the prophecies await a future and final fulfillment? 
the events in Egypt and the Middle East may have come as a surprise to our government and it may have come as a surprise to this administration. But do you think God is in heaven going, Gabriel, turn on CNN. I want to see what what's going on in Egypt and what Anderson Cooper has to say about the collapse of the Egyptian government. No, God isn't in heaven wondering how it's all going to work out. The Bible insists that God is sovereign and that God has a plan. And in the sovereignty of God and in the, in the plan of God, here is the big principle that we want to begin with. Judgment is certain. Sin must be judged. Idolatry must be judged. Why? Because sin and idolatry will always be an inadequate and an incomplete provision for you. By the way, you were never meant to trust sin or idolatry. Regional wars in the Middle East have taken place in every century. The Bible speaks of the reality that one day there will be a global government. And that global government will seem peaceful in the beginning and and it will morph into something sinister and wicked. But the Bible also says that there will be another future global government where Jesus Christ, the Lord, will rule and reign, where he will occupy the throne of his father, David, that he will rule and reign with glory and majesty and righteousness and propriety. And since regional wars have always been a part of the Middle East, it's taken place in every century. How are we to think about what's taking place right now? By the way, in 2010, Egypt and Saudi Arabia reportedly conducted joint military exercises for a possible future confrontation with Iran. Iran is the heir to the ancient Persian Empire. And the current president of Iran, like I said, has repeatedly vowed to wipe Israel off the face of the map. Psalm 83 predicts the rise by some people's reckoning, by other people, maybe not. But there's an interesting coalition that is spoken of in Psalm 83. Some see it prophetically. Some see it anecdotally, but look what it says in, in Psalm 83, 5, for they have consulted together with one consent. They form a confederacy against you. The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagarites, Gebel, Ammon, Amalek, Philistia, the inhabitants of Tyre, Assyria also has joined with them. They have helped or helped the children of Lot. In other words, Psalm 83 describes a 10 nation confederacy, which in history, by the way, has never been seen in exactly that formation. One of the problems, like I said, is that it doesn't the events historically don't seem to account for the content of the psalm. The psalm speaks of various vicious foes. Some that are related to Israel, some that are remote from Israel in in, in verse eight. The Psalms superscription at the very beginning says. To the chief musician upon get it, it relates to 
a wine press, which seems to set the tone of an unrelenting pressure. Israel in a coming day will be in desperate circumstances. In Psalm 83, 6 and 7, it reads of the Moabites and the Hagarites. And by the way, the Moabites are the direct descendants of Lot and his daughters in what you and I would call the modern state of Jordan, the Hagarites, of course, are the descendants of Hagar, who lived east of Gilead in First Chronicles chapter 5, verse 10 and 19 and 20. Many of you remember the story that Avram wickedly, inappropriately, in rebellion, went to Egypt instead of staying in the place where God promised. Because he went to Egypt, he acquired a servant. He took the servant from Egypt with him. To another place. You'll remember God gave a promise and God said that through your seed, all of the world would be blessed. And again, rebellion and disobedience. Both of them conspired to have a baby apart from Sarah and with Hagar. That baby was Ishmael. And Ishmael, of course, there are powerful, powerful blessings that God promises even for them. He speaks of the tabernacles or the tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites. He speaks of Gebel, Ammon, Amalek. Gebel would seem to be Phoenicia or what you and I would call Lebanon. But there was an outpost in Gaza. By the way, the Phoenicians had several outposts. One of the outposts that they had is in modern Tripoli. Another outpost was in Carthage. It was the Carthaginian people who were the direct descendants of the Phoenicians who challenged Rome for the supremacy of the Mediterranean. As a matter of fact, Assyria, it says, also joined them. And they have Holpen helped the children of Lot. Assyria was a leading moral support and encouragement in the whole scheme. And the prime movers in the planned offensive seemed to be the children of Lot. By the way, the word holpen or help is literally they have become an arm to the children of Lot. It was the northern power which supplied the strength and the muscle, if you will, the moral resolve for the Arabs to wage war against Israel in the past. And Assyria, of course, to embolden the surrounding nations. Clearly, the coalition looks too strong for the tiny nation. But here's part of the point that is given in Psalm 83 that's given in Ezekiel 37 and 38 that's given here in Isaiah chapter 19. Clearly, they are not simply challenging Israel, but God. In verses 9 and 10, the psalm describes the God of Israel overthrowing the group with a, with a strong tempest, if you will, in the book of Psalms, in Psalm 83. And so in verse 2, it says, I will set Egyptian against Egyptian. Everyone will fight against his brother and everyone against his neighbor. City against city, kingdom against kingdom. It's a repetitive thing that was taking place in the past and continues to take place in the present if you watch TV. In verse 3, the spirit of Egypt will fail in its midst. I will destroy their counsel. They will consult the idols and the charmers, the mediums and the sorcerers. It says in verse 4, and and the Egyptians I will give into the hand of a cruel master and a fierce king will rule over them, says the Lord. In verse three, 
where it says, I will destroy their council. In the ancient times, the Egyptians were world renowned for magic and for understanding and for counsel. And basically what this is prophesying is that the wisdom of human beings will come to naught. In verse 4, when it says, and the Egyptians I will give into the hand of a cruel master. If we look back historically, there was an invasion by the people of Ethiopia who occupied the land. And then in the north, there was an invasion by the Assyrians who occupied the land. Egypt has been historically ruled by foreigners. Even though you may not know this, Cleopatra was a direct descendant of the Ptolemies, who was one of the generals of Alexander the, the Greek and was not Egyptian by birth or blood. As a matter of fact, the IVP Old Testament background commentary has this interesting note, quote, an immediate threat to the native Egyptian rulers was the Ethiopian king Shabaka. His Nubian kingdom eventually conquered the Egyptian Delta in 716 B.C., and that would fit the time period. It is also possible that Isaiah is referring to Assyria. The Delta kings had joined the Philistine revolt led by Gaza against Syria and Sargon II in 720. It could easily be surmised that Assyria would eventually wish to conquer Egypt and add it to its empire. Both Tiglath-Pileser III and Sargon II made treaties with the Arab tribes, even among the Sinai and Philistine borders, to keep a check on Egypt. Tensions continued to grow between the nations until 663 BC. Ajrapanipal successfully marches south through the Nile Valley and sacks Thebes. Has these events taken place in the past? Yeah. Do they picture a future event? Perhaps will the Egyptian people substitute one cruel master for another? Apparently. Apparently there will come. Another ruler. Is it possible that that. Ruler or leader will forge an alliance of the nations. That perhaps may be spoken of in Psalm 83 and Jeremiah 49 and Ezekiel 38 and 39. Look at verse 5. The waters will fail from the sea and the river will be wasted and dried up. Here's part of the key point that you need to know. Human wisdom fails. The water fails. If the Nile were to dry up, it would signal... A monumental collapse, including an economic collapse. The Nile is the lifeblood of Egypt. There's no water agreements, by the way, that exist with the, 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 uh, the nations that are directly south. The Nile, remember, begins as a headwater 1,500 miles further south. The Nile is the third largest freshwater body on the planet Earth. It says that the rivers will turn foul. The brooks of defense will be emptied and dried up in verse 6. The reeds and the rushes will wither. Verse 7. The papyri reeds by the river, by the mouth of the river, and everything sown by the river will wither, driven away, be no more. The fishermen will also will mourn. They will lament who cast their hooks into the river. That's fishermen. They will languish who spread the nets on the waters. Moreover, those who work and find flax and those who weave fine fabric will be ashamed. So here's the description. 
with the lack of irrigation, the, the, the land turns into a desert. The crops fail. The fishing industry collapses. Wage earners are unemployed. The country is bankrupt. And there's a sense of hopelessness and helplessness that grips their hearts. And the foundations, look what it says, will be broken. All who make wages will be troubled. That, that's the idea. In ancient times as well as modern times, the people of Egypt are completely dependent upon the Nile. By the way, did you know that 46% of every Egyptian pound that is generated in this country is from that Nile Delta? There were times in the past where it was fairly dependable and predictable with the with the installation of the dams further south. They've been able to literally manage the water in a somewhat stable way. In the ancient times, the scribes would mark the failure of the Nile, and they knew that that meant poor crops, poor harvests, the inability to produce clothing. The Nile River was filled with channels and irrigation channels to, to create cultivation. Now, you've got to understand something. If you have a map and you're going down the Nile, think of a swath that's about 27 miles wide and 150 miles long. And that's why this was the breadbasket of the ancient world. And they were dependent. Travel was dependent on it. But this should cause you to ask a different kind of a question. What am I dependent upon? Go ahead. Just in a moment, just ask yourself that question. What am I dependent upon? Is it important to you to have a job, to take a shower, to have food? What would happen if you woke up and the lights didn't come on and you didn't have a job? Tell me what your response would be. And you see, the reality is that we as Christians are called upon, if you will, to be dependent upon the Lord. That doesn't mean that we don't need a job or that we don't need food or that we don't need help. But the reality is the Bible doesn't tell us to be dependent upon this government or dependent upon this economy or dependent upon this or that. But the reality becomes our life, our love, our dependence. We begin to understand something. The job that you have, it comes from the Lord. The circumstances in your life, it comes from the Lord, your family from the Lord. In other words, it is a good God and, a, and, a, and an overshadowing God who we are to depend upon. The Bible says, trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Lean not to your own understanding. In all of your ways, acknowledge him. Is that exactly what you're doing? In verse 11, it says, surely the princes of Zoan are fools. Pharaoh's wise counselors give foolish counsel. By the way, Zoan is the Hebrew word which means north, where the Nile empties into the Mediterranean. The ancient kingdom of Egypt was also called Tanis. As a matter of fact, it didn't become known as Egyptos until much later in time. Leaders, religious officials, political appointees were members of Pharaoh's household. They were the ruling families of Egypt. They were associated with Zoan, and it was a city in the upper Nile Delta, about 29 miles from the Mediterranean coast. Now, these people considered themselves direct descendants of the most ancient and noble families in Egypt. For them, family heritage, family registry, 
was more important than you can imagine. We live in a culture and a society that may not place as much importance. But let me give you at least some idea. Imagine the day of judgment comes or the day of catastrophe comes and someone says, my family came over here on the Mayflower. So is that going to help you in the day of judgment? Do you think that just because you have a signed letter from your great great grandpa that says you came over from on the Mayflower, that that's going to Make the day of judgment go away. That's the point that he's making. Zoan was the capital of Egypt at the beginning of the 21st dynasty. So here is part of the point. Part of the point that Isaiah is making in the prophecy is that from the very north of the country to the very south of the country to the east and the west, human wisdom would fail. Egyptians would try to deal with the unexplained omens by chanting prayers, using magical incantations. They would consult the records of the ancients to see how the ancients dealt with similar catastrophes in the past. And maybe someone, someone, maybe someone, someone will open up a Bible and say, the God of Israel was here once before. And there was a huge judgment that was visited on our country. But when we cooperated with God, things went well with us. (laughs) But when we resist God and oppose God, things don't go well with us. Isn't that true of your life? When you resist and oppose God, how goes it? But when you cooperate with God, how goes it? And so Isaiah says in verse 12, where are they? Where are your wise men? Let them tell you now. And let them know what the Lord of hosts has purposed against Egypt. What do you do? When the water is gone. What do you do? When the wisdom runs dry. You know, there's a water promised for believers spoken of in the New Testament as living water. Jesus said, come to me and and I'll give you living water out of your inmost being will flow rivers of living water. In verse 13, the princes of Zoan have become fools. The princes of Noph are deceived. Noph, by the way, is the ancient city of Memphis, not Memphis, Tennessee, where the king is from. Different king. It's the Egyptian way of saying from the very north to the very south. We might say, again, there's no one in the country who can deal with the catastrophe. And that makes sense, doesn't it? Has a catastrophe ever visited our country? Where were you five years ago when Hurricane Katrina came by? Did the combined collection of men and women in our government avert disaster? No, with the collective resources of the United States of America, were we able to prevent billion dollars of damage and hundreds of people losing their lives, including my own family? No, this becomes part of the point in the day of judgment, in the day of catastrophe. Who will you trust? 
And look at verse 14. The Lord has mingled a perverse spirit in her midst. And they have caused Egypt to err in all her work as a drunken man staggers in his vomit. Here, the Egyptian people have been given way more than they can swallow. In other words, catastrophe after catastrophe, judgment after judgment. The idea is that a person is trying to make the pain go away by swallowing massive amounts of alcohol like the man who is drunk and staggers and this person is so drunk that they begin to vomit and then they begin to swallow their own vomit. The country is in a complete state of panic, confusion, inebriation, discombobulation. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29, the writer of Hebrews says, Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will he be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted the Spirit of grace? It's the writer of Hebrews' way of saying, Is there a certain judgment for those who reject Christ and his provision of grace and mercy? The answer is yes. There's a reason why... Judgment comes both to idolatry and sin because it can't help you. It won't save you. It won't deliver you. And so God is, in effect, doing you a favor by removing these things from your life. And then there's a future vision of mercy. The Lord gives Egypt a wonderful promise, the promise of a future salvation. As a matter of fact, just very quickly, it says in that day, Egypt will be like women and will be afraid and fear because of the waving of the hands of the Lord of hosts, which he waves over it. In verse 18, in that day, five cities in the land of Egypt will speak the language of Canaan and will swear by the Lord of hosts. One one will be called the city of destruction in verse 21. Then the Lord will be known to Egypt and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and will make sacrifice and offering. Yes, they will perform a vow or make a vow and the Lord and they will perform it and the Lord will strike Egypt and the Lord will heal it. They will return to the Lord and he will be entreated by them and he will heal them in that day. There will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria and the Assyrian will come into Egypt and the Egyptian into Assyria and the Egyptians will serve with the Assyrians in that day Israel will be one of three with Egypt and Assyria a blessing in the midst of the land whom the Lord of hosts shall bless saying blessed is Egypt my people you should underline it blessed is Egypt my people and Assyria the work of my hand or my handiwork and Israel my tabernacle At what point will Egypt be his people and Assyria his handiwork? I'm going to suggest something to you. When Egypt sees Israel as God's inheritance and when Assyria sees Israel as God's inheritance. And so I suspect in that day refers to a future day. A future day of judgment, a day when Jesus, the Messiah, is recognized as King and Christ. In that day, Egypt will fear the Lord. Egypt will fear the raised hand of God. But here's the idea. They will recognize this as the hand of God, the God of Israel. In that day, some Egyptians will know and serve the Lord. In that day, it would appear that five cities will institute worship and speak Hebrew. 
By the way, in the day of Jesus, according to Philo, there were over one million Jews living in, in Egypt. In 1922, there were 85,000 Jews living in Egypt. In 2010, according to the State Department, 400 Jews living in a country with 800, excuse me, with 80 million people. Isaiah seems to describe in that day, in that day, in that day. Let me give you a brief synopsis, a scenario where a military clash between Egypt and Israel results in an Israeli victory, an unprecedented spiritual revival among Egyptians, prayers and cries to the living Lord, the God of Judah. On the part of Egyptians, God's saving answer, a warm and welcome attitude on the part of Egypt to both the Hebrew language and the worship of the Hebrew God, a highway of peace that connects Egypt and Israel. We might think of it as a bridge, if you will, that goes from Cairo all the way to Jerusalem, north and then east, if you will, into the modern state of northern Iraq. As a matter of fact, this is the picture. Worship among Egyptians, Jews, and Assyrians. God's declaration that Egyptians are his people. Assyria, his handiwork. In verse 16, in that day, God, Egypt will be like women. No offense, ladies. And will be afraid and fear because of the waving of the hand. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. Almost in my lifetime, in 1948... Egypt tried to destroy Israel at its very inception. In 1956, the year that I was born, Egypt fought with Israel and lost. In 1967, Egypt fought with Israel and lost. In 1973, Egypt fought with Israel. And not only did Israel turn the tables, but began a tank march that would have ultimately ended in Cairo if the United States of America had not made them stop. When I was in college, Anwar Sadat signed a peace treaty with Israel. He was killed in October of 1981 by a member of the Muslim Brotherhood. The day that he was assassinated, Hosni Mubarak was also hurt and shot. Two American liaison officers were killed. A Coptic Orthodox bishop was killed. The Israeli defense minister was killed. The Iranian government celebrated their death and named a city in Tehran after the assassin. So what's the city of destruction? We don't know. And no compelling reason has ever been given to me. Someone asked me, well, what's the significance? What the, what's the significance of a million people, Jews, living in Egypt versus 80,000 versus 400? What's the significance of that? Remember, Egypt in the Bible becomes a type and a picture of the world. And remember, the world of the Egyptian played a twofold role in the Bible. It was a place of refuge and sanctuary for Jesus But it also became a place that was inappropriately trusted by the people of God. And so over and over again, there were warnings. Please don't go there. Please don't go there. Please don't go there. But in those warnings, remember, it becomes a type and a picture 
of not trusting the world. It doesn't mean you can't travel to Egypt on tour. That's not what it's saying. And so, the Lord will have mercy on the Egyptians. The Lord will have mercy on those who turn to him and repent of their unbelief and sin and receive Jesus by faith. The Lord will offer salvation to the Egyptians. Why do you think that's important for you? Because if God is willing to offer salvation to the Assyrians and if he's willing to offer salvation to the to the Egyptians, why wouldn't he offer it to you? Why wouldn't he invite you to experience forgiveness and hope and reconciliation? He offers mercy and salvation to anyone who is willing to take it. Does this scripture teach that a majority of Egyptians will turn to the Lord in the day of tribulation and call upon the name of the Lord? Wouldn't you like to know? My advice? Don't stick around to the tribulation in order to find out. My advice? Pray for them now. Partner now. Begin to think about how God can use you in a partnership of bringing Christ to the Middle East. And we're going to have a whole lot more to say about that in the weeks and months ahead. But just know this. Salvation is from the Lord. So if you're wondering why you're going through the things that you're going through. Is it possible that God might be purging you? Is it possible that God wants you to give up those foolish things that you've been trusting and invite you to trust him. What is it that you think about when you get up in the morning? What is it that you live for throughout the day? What is it that you go to bed when you lay your head on the pillow? What is it that you're thinking about? Is it your life? Is it your circumstances? Is it what you will eat and what you will sleep or how you're going to pay your bills? Are you trusting the Lord? Have you made Jesus the ultimate source of your provision? Are you trusting in the wisdom of human beings or the water of failed philosophies? Or are you trusting the Lord? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we know that you have a plan. You have a plan for Egypt. You have a plan for the the nations in the Middle East. You have a plan for Israel. And Lord, it would seem that that plan isn't simply the destruction of some and the salvation of others. But a deep heart and a deep commitment. A love and a willingness that none perish. But all have eternal life. And so, Heavenly Father, we pray, we pray For our brothers and our sisters who are suffering at this very moment inside of Egypt and Tunisia. Who are suffering inside of Libya. Who are in bondage and chains in Iraq and Iran. Lord, we pray and we partner with them even at this very moment, Lord. Even though they're half a world away. Lord, we pray that they they would sense your presence and your love But, Lord, we also pray that they would sense our presence and our affection as we jointly and collectively pray for them. And we pray for their release and we pray for their usefulness, for your glory and for the kingdom of God. 
Lord, we pray that one day other brothers and sisters would be so bold as to pray for us. When we come to that place of deprivation or isolation. And we need someone praying for us and interceding for us. And again, Lord, we thank you that you have a plan. Salvation for Israel. Salvation for Egypt. Salvation for the Middle East. Lord, give us a willingness to learn more. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.